Joshua 22, we'll begin with verse 10. We've read the first nine verses the last time we were together. Um, the people are in their land. The distribution for all of the tribes has been completed. And uh, we're reaching the end of the book of Joshua, but there's several years that will pass between chapter 22 and the end of the book uh, that really isn't given much detail for, but uh, chapter 23 will be an address to the elders of the people, and 24 will be his final address to the people of Israel. And so we're going to put all of that together tonight in our, our one study. Uh, but chapter 22, verse 10, finishes with a story about a conflict that resulted in actions that were taken by the two and a half tribes that lived on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So in verse 10 of chapter 22, we read these things. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, built an altar there by the Jordan, a great impressive altar. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the children of Israel's side. So it's interesting to note a couple of things here as we begin this study tonight. The two and a half tribes of the nation of Israel that are on the eastern side of the Jordan are moving back to their land. Basically, it's just the warriors that had been with the other nine and a half tribes throughout the seven years of the taking of the land and the distribution of the land to those other tribes was completed. Now they're moving back into their own land. But as they leave the western side of the Jordan River, before they cross over, they build this very large altar and then they cross over to the other side. And it caused a lot of people to question what is going on with this. In fact, it says, interestingly, in, in uh, verse 11, Now the children of Israel heard someone say. Uh, it's interesting that the word someone is inserted by the translators. Uh, basically, it's hearsay. You know, we are familiar with that term, hearsay. Something is said by somebody. You don't know who it was that started the rumor, but it started, and now we're in trouble because everybody is being informed or misinformed, depending on how that rumor is propagated. Well, here, in this particular situation, there were some who realized that the children of the two and a half tribes had indeed built an altar on the western side of the Jordan River and then moved across to the other side and it caused a great deal of concern that built into anger by the other nine and a half tribes. So in verse 12 we read, And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them how quickly things get heated up and out of control. That's a perfect example of something that happens when nobody gets all of the details, but everybody makes assumptions based on what they've been told, whether it's true or not. Nobody 
had attempted to get the facts. They just got overheated about the situation. They were angry and they began to then talk about going to war against their own people just because an altar was built with no explanation and no reason given. They just assumed that it was for the purpose of offering sacrifices on that other altar instead of the altar that was constructed in Shiloh, the original altar that was part of the tabernacle. They did not like it. And so they're saying, we need to go to fight these men and completely destroy their cities over this one issue. Well, that wasn't exactly God's plan. And it wasn't really that which was intended by those two and a half tribes of Israel. They were faithful. And now we're finding out the rest of the story as we read further. Verse 12 says, And when the children of Israel heard of it, again, the whole congregation wanted to go to war against them. Then, verse 13 says, The children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, into the land of Gilead, on the other side of Jordan, and with him ten rulers, one ruler each, from the chief house of every tribe of Israel. And each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. So they're sending a team of elders to the two and a half tribes to find out what is happening here. They, that was a good decision, that they would get over their hot-headedness soon enough to prevent a major conflict. So they're going to inquire now what's going on. Verse 15 says, Then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead, and they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord, in that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord? Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us? from which we are not cleansed till this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? It shall be, if you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. But do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. Now, they've given two examples of situations that developed that all of the tribes of Israel were very well familiar with. The first was in Peor when they were waiting to cross into Israel, the Canaan, and there was a situation that developed where the king of Moab wanted to find out a way to take care of this invasion of his land by the people of God. And so he hired Balaam, you'll remember, and that's going to be mentioned again a little later on. But Balaam was a Gentile prophet who talked finally Balaam into the means by which he could 
take advantage of the people of God and cause them to sin by sending women of Moabites into the camp of Israel and, and they would have a sexual encounter with the men of Israel and that would be a sin that God would condemn and judge his people for. Well, that was the first thing. Then the second was the fact that just a short time before, before uh, the, the battle continued after Jericho, that Achan was taking some of the spoils from himself and hiding it in his tent. And that was a sin against the Lord because that was to be only for the Lord and not for the individuals who had beat, beaten uh, the city of Jericho and taken all the spoils. That was for the Lord only. That was God's spoils, not the people's. So Achan was judged, and there were many who were actually punished as a result of that. Thirty-six men of the warriors of Israel had died in the first encounter at Ai because of Achan's sin. So the priest, in this case, the son of um, Eleazar, Phineas, was going now to discuss these situations that are now developing. And he gives these examples to suggest to the two and a half tribes of Israel that they should not be doing what they are doing because it would affect the whole nation, not just them. So verse 21 continues and says, Then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods he knows, and let Israel itself know. If it is in rebellion or if in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings, or if to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require an account. They're defending their having built this altar, and they're letting the other tribes know, you're wrong about your assumptions here. And he's now being, Phineas is now being told, their motive behind their having built this altar. It is not what the other tribes had thought. He says in verse 24, But in fact, we have done it for fear, for a reason, saying, In time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, What have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us, you children of Reuben and children of Gad. You have no part in the Lord. So your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord. So they were afraid that because they were separated by the Jordan River, that later generations would reject the two and a half tribes of Israel on the other side of the Jordan. It was a valid consideration. Whether or not that might have taken place is hearsay. But hearsay was the reason for this conflict to begin with. So verse 26 says, Therefore we said, again the two and a half tribes defending themselves, let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us, 
that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifices, and with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. They wanted to do their offerings upon the altar that God had established in Shiloh on the western side of the Jordan. And they were completely content with doing so. But they were concerned that the generations to come would be forced not to be able to do so by the other nine and a half tribes of Israel because of their having lived on the other side of the Jordan River. So it was a valid reason for their concern. And again, the altar that they built was a memorial, not for offering of sacrifices. They would never have done that. And so that's what they've told Phineas here as their defense for what they have done. Verse 28 continues and says, Therefore we said that it will be when they say this to us or to our generations in time to come, that we may say, Here is a replica of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, though not for burnt offering nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between you and us. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings, for grain offerings, or for sacrifices besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. Now Phineas, when he heard these things and the rulers of the congregation with him, all the heads of the divisions of Israel who were with him, they heard the words that the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. Good. This was a good ending to what could have been a very terrible confrontation. It says in verse 31, Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest and the rulers, returned from the children of Reuben and the children of Gad from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the children of Israel and brought back word to them. So the thing pleased the children of Israel and the children of Israel blessed God. They spoke no more of going against them in battle to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. The Hebrew word for witness here in this text is Ed, like Edward. So if you know any Eds, their name means witness in the Hebrew. Maybe you can mention that to them. But the witness was simply that. It was a means by which the people on the other side of Jordan could uh, make sure that they would be recognized in future generations as members of the nation of Israel. They did not want to be separated from the other nine and a half tribes in any way. Now, chapter 23, many years have passed. They're already now in the land of Canaan, at least perhaps about, I guess we should say, 20 years or so. There were seven years of battle, and now it is assumed by many theologians, and I have no reason to dispute it, that a total of about 20 years has passed. Joshua was around 80 years 
to 85 years old when the battles began and now they've been in the land for close to 20 years. So in that period of time, Joshua has grown very old indeed. We're told in these passages that we'll be reading that he is 110 years old when he dies. But he has some things to say to the people of Israel that they need to hear. And it all, all of it is important for us to hear as well. Because what he lays out is a reasonable response of the people of God to what God has done. And if we respond properly to what God has done, then we would receive blessing from the Lord. If we don't receive those things that God has done and don't continue to walk in the path that God has chosen, then there are consequences to that. Joshua is now going to be telling that to his people in this very last time in which he is still remaining on the earth. So in verse 20, verse 1 of chapter 23, it says, Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua was old, advanced in age. Think back to chapter 13, verse 1, where Joshua is now just beginning the conquest of the land. At that time, it is said, Joshua was old and advanced in age. Now he's very old indeed and advanced in age. And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and said to them, I am old and advanced in age. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is He who has fought for you. He's reminding them that God was the one who brought them into the land. He went before them as they conquered the armies. And he's reminding the people that God was always there with them. And he went before them just as he said he would do. He fought for you, he said. In verse 4 it says, See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. So now, after these many years, they still haven't completed the process of emptying the land of Canaan of all of the Canaanites. That is a problem. But it is a process that at that time they were still at least willing to do, but they weren't in any hurry, and even God wasn't in any hurry. Remember, we've talked about that. God said we will be able to possess the land little by little as God leads. So they knew that that was still a process that needed to be completed. And Joshua is here reminding them of that. He says in verse 6, Therefore be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it, to the right hand or to the left. Unless you go among the, these nations, those who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them. 
but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. So, so far, they've done well. Joshua is commending them. They did not take, at that time, the foreign gods into the worship of the people of the nation of Israel. Generally speaking, that was so. We're going to find later on, and I'm not sure how much later on that time will have been, but there is going to be, even in Joshua's last days, a problem among the people with regard to the gods of the Canaanites. But here, Joshua is commending them for the fact that they have not done what they were told not to do by the Lord, that he is the only God that they will serve. And it's important that they acknowledge that. And Joshua is reminding them of these things. He says in verse 9, For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, as he promised you. That's a quote. One man of you shall chase a thousand from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses had written that about the people of God. In the Psalms also, we find in Psalm 91, a similar reference. Ten, uh, a thousand will fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, it tells us in chapter 91 of the book of Psalms. The encouragement that is given to the people of God is that you will dominate. You will not be defeated. That's a good word for the people of Israel, by the way, today, uh, with what's going on in the land of Israel and all of the various enemies that are rearing up uh, against them and causing a great deal of trouble for the people of God. They need to remember that their God has said, He will protect them. So he says in verse 11, Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God, or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and make marriages with them, and go in to them, and they to you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you, and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So there's the warning. If you allow yourselves to fall into the traps of going after their gods and interrelations with their women and they with your women, that would be the end of you. So it's a stark warning. They needed to hear it. And initially they were willing to receive it and acknowledge it as being from the Lord. He continues and says in verse 14, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. That's a very, very powerful statement. God promised many things, and he delivered on every single one of them. That's something that you and I must also remember and consider as we live through these last days. There are many precious promises that have not yet been fulfilled, 
But because of what God has already done, we can know without any fear, without any doubt, that God will do what God has said. Just as it was then, so it is now. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 15 says, Therefore it shall come to pass, that is, all good things have come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Behold, both the goodness and the severity of your God. If you do well, he will bless you. If you do not do well, you will be punished. Verse 16 says, When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, notice he says, not if you have transgressed, but when you have transgressed. It's expected that they will fail. That's, that's coming from the Lord himself, by the Holy Spirit, through Joshua, to the people. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. So that's the warning. Yes, they will continue to receive the blessings if they continue to love the Lord their God and not turn away from him. Unfortunately, you know the story. They did. But God's mercy, God's grace abounds. And he is patient. And from these last days of Joshua until the time of David, the period of the judges reflects that very same thing that we just read here. For a season, they followed after God. But they became prosperous. And over time, their prosperity caused them to turn away from their God. And over and over again, the book of Judges, which we are probably going to go to next, the book of Judges recorded for us over and over and over again. They did what was right in their own eyes. That was the reason they failed to do God's will, because they decided to do it their way instead of God's way. Continuing on in chapter 24, it tells us that Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before the Lord again. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, and led him through all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess, but to Jacob and his children they went down to Egypt. Now here, in these first several verses of chapter 24, Joshua is recording their history from the time of Abraham until his present hour. And it's interesting to note, by the way, in verse 2, he says that Abraham and his father Terah and those who were with him, they lived in Nahor in the region which is now around the territory of the Euphrates River 
East Iraq today. And in that territory, they were idolaters. They served other gods. Abraham did not know God until God revealed himself to Abraham, whose name then was Abram. And it is by faith that Abraham heard and received the promise of God. And it was by faith that Abraham left his family. It took a while. He didn't go right away, but he did go. And when he went to the land of Canaan, unaware of exactly what God's purpose and plan was, he just went by faith. God counted it to him as righteousness. And he is the beginning of the nation of Israel. He's not himself an Israelite because Israel isn't really established until his grandson Jacob has 12 sons and they become the nation of Israel. But he's the father of their faith, the father of our faith. He's recognized as a man of faith. And he's mentioned here in this portion of the story of Joshua's last words to the people as a reminder where they came from. He goes on to say in verse 5, Also, I sent Moses and Aaron some 400 and so years later. I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. And then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. Take note of the fact that Joshua is as he's recording this history, speaking of it in the first person, as though God himself were speaking. And that was exactly what was taking place. Joshua, the man of God, was speaking prophetically and pronouncing that as God is speaking to him, Joshua is now relating those very words to the people. This message is coming from God's lips. That's why we see so often, some 17 times, the word I in this passage that we're looking at today. So he's finished telling them that it was he who brought them out of Egypt. And he brought them through the wilderness for that period of 40 years. And then in verse 8 it says, And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwell on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand, that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Now here he's talking about on the eastern side of the Jordan River. The Amorites were in that territory that is now occupied by the people of God, the two and a half tribes of Israel on the eastern side. And it tells us again in verse 8 that God delivered that Amorite king into their hands so that they might possess that land. And I destroyed them from before you. There are several expositors and pastors and teachers who insist that the two and a half tribes of Israel on the eastern side of the Jordan were not following God's plan. They did not 
go into the land of Canaan. Therefore, those who argue these things are trying to convince the people that hear them and read their stories or commentaries that those two and a half tribes of Israel made a mistake. It tells us here that God gave them that land for their possession. And I'm convinced that although I can understand where others are coming from, if you look at God's promise to Abraham, he had promised Abraham all the land from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Euphrates River. It is the promised land, even though it wasn't in the Canaan territory, it was still part of God's promise to Abraham. And so it's still the promised land. And yes, because they were on the eastern side of the Jordan River, they were more susceptible to the attacks from armies from Assyria and other places on the east all the way through to the Euphrates River. The Babylonians would have come through their land to invade the people on the other side of the Jordan River as well. But they should not be discredited for their choosing that land. It was given to them by the Lord. Well, verse 9 continues and says, Then Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam the son of Beor to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. This is God speaking. Therefore he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Then... You went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, but I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow." I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyard and olive groves which you did not plant. So now God is again reminding them, I was there with you. I delivered you this land, and the people that inhabited this land were subjected to you. You overwhelmed them, not because of your great ability or skill, but because I did it before you. I sent hornets before you, he says in verse 12. Now, I'm not really sure if he meant that literally. I think he did. However, many hornets it might have taken to completely cause the armies of Israel's enemies to run. And I think that a very large number of hornets were probably the result of God's miraculous moving on behalf of his people. It must have been a sight to see the hornets going before them in huge swarms, confusing the armies that they were about to defeat. God's reminding them of all of this. He says in verse 14, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And it seems, or if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day 
whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I've got a plaque on my home with that verse. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is an essential thing for us as believers in Jesus Christ to do what Joshua is doing here. Proclaim our commitment to serving the Lord. There's a song that we used to sing, I will serve you because I love you. You have given life to me. I will serve you, Lord, because I love you. But I'm also mindful of the fact that I love him because he first loved me. That's what the Word of God tells us. But we are also to serve the Lord, fear the Lord, reverence him, in awe, be mindful of his greatness, in sincerity and in truth. The word sincerity in the Greek language is used by the Apostle Paul in in 1 Corinthians to talk about the fact that we should not be double-minded. Sincerity is a Greek word that has to do with the, the things that were done by sculptors or people that made clay vessels. If the clay vessel or the sculptor was nicked or needed to repair, they would melt wax and add some clay or some material that would harden as the wax formed over the crack in the jar, clay jar, or over the sculpture, so that it would appear as though there were no imperfections. They were insincere, because that wasn't perfect clay. It wasn't perfect granite or stone. It was damaged. It was insincere. So here he's saying, be sincere in your serving the Lord and serve Him in truth. I'm so grateful for the Word of God. And the Word is true. Jesus said, I believe it. When Jesus in John 17, praying that wonderful prayer to His Father, He spoke of the Word of God. And he said, Thy word is true. Jesus said of himself, I am the truth, the way, the light, the truth. He is truth. There's no doubt in my mind that we should continue to serve him in sincerity and in truth in our living out our lives today. Joshua did it. He wasn't alone, but he reminded the people they had a choice. Either they served the Lord or they served the gods of the Amorites or the Canaanites. And they had a choice to make. Would they do it? Joshua reminds them, as far as I'm concerned, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 16 says, So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is He who brought us 
and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Great. They're making the same commitment. They're fully aware of the need for them to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to serve Him in sincerity and in truth. But, it tells us in verse 19, Joshua continued to say to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. They're arguing with Joshua. They're saying, No, we're on track. We're doing it right. We believe what you've said. We're, we're on the same page, Joshua. But here's the rub. Verse 22. So Joshua said to the people, Your witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore, he said, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Take note of what Joshua has said. He knew that they were hiding the truth. They were saying on the outside, we will serve the Lord. But they were tempted on the inside to go after other gods. And the proof of it, Joshua was well aware, they had those idols within their houses still. That's why again in verse 23 he says, Now therefore he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you. They had not yet done that. And that was going to continue to be the plague of the people of Israel throughout their history until the Babylonian captivity. Verse 26 says, Then Joshua wrote these things in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God." So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. So an inanimate object, a stone, has heard everything they have said. God has heard everything they have said. There's no question but what Joshua is reminding the people, you cannot lie and get away with it. 29, verse 29 says, Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. He indeed was very old and advanced in years. Moses, before him, had died at the age of 120. It's not very likely that most of us will expect to live quite that long, although it is a possibility in these last days, perhaps. But as we approach 
the end of our lives, as we get older day by day, let us be mindful of this one thing. The outer man is indeed perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. Let that be the case for all of us. And as we continue to serve Him in these last days, however many days we may have left, let us be faithful to the very end of our lives. Lastly, the book of Joshua ends with these words. In verse 30, They buried him, Joshua, within the border of his inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Very well. They were continuing even after Joshua's death until that generation had finally passed. And then the book of Judges will begin to reveal that which took place in the lives of the people of God for the next several hundred years. Finally, in verse 32, it says, The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. So, even the bones of Joseph, remember, he had told the people of God back in Genesis chapter 50, it is recorded there that in the days before he died, he wanted his bones to be brought with them when they came out of the land of Egypt and entered into the land of Canaan. Joshua believed the promise of God and he wanted to be buried in the land of Canaan. That promise that God had made to Abraham that the people would inherit that land it has now become a reality and Joseph has now been buried in that plot of land that Jacob had bought at Shechem. Lastly, verse 33 says, And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. The second high priest has now passed from the scene. Phineas is now the high priest. There will be a lot of trouble ahead for the nation of Israel. But there will be many times when God will deliver them from the hands of their enemies because God loves His people. They are still His people today. And I am convinced because the Word of God has spoken of these things, that He's not done with His people. They are in a bad place today. They are experiencing very difficult times. The worst is not yet. There's going to be more trouble ahead. That which is being experienced in Israel today, I believe is perhaps a prelude to those things that are recorded for us in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39. The things that are recorded in Daniel and the book of Revelation, that final seven years that God is going to deal with His people, 
are a time, according to Jeremiah, of Jacob's trouble. A time Jesus spoke of. That is a time that will be so terrible that there will not have been anything like it before, nor will there ever be afterward. But after that period of seven years, there is restoration for the people of Israel. He will come, according to the book of Zechariah. He will stand on Mount Zion. They will see Him. They will look to Him. They will turn to Him. And they will be redeemed. They will be His people throughout His reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. The millennial kingdom will be center stage Jerusalem throughout that period of time. It will be a wonderful time of blessing. It's a time when you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, will reign with Him and we will be there as He now helps His people to be everything that He intended for them to be. A long road ahead for them. And I don't know how many days none of us do before any of these things do take place. But I do know this. God will perform it because He said He will. Grace and peace.